Welcome, everyone, to the Chain Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And in this week's episode, we welcome Josh Stamper. Josh is a author. He's a podcaster. He's a leadership coach. He's a presenter. And he's a podcast network manager for the Teach Better team. This conversation was a fun one because I, I think a few weeks, uh, probably a month or so ago, we had a superintendent who came from a non-traditional background. In this case, for me, non-traditional was being a French teacher to start her career. Josh, in this case, started his work as a graphic designer, became an art teacher, and then worked his, up to, worked his way up to administrator. And it's just really interesting to hear how that story impacted his leadership, how that, insto- that story has impacted his writing, his blogs, his book that I want everyone to check out that's listening to this podcast, and his podcast network. The one thing that I can tell you that you'll get from this conversation is you're going to listen to a very humble educator who just wants to support, connect, and inspire the future of educators and the future education leaders. And so this conversation is very raw, very real. There's a part of it where I feel like I just jump on a couch. You know, the, the picture pictures behind me are often my three boys. And I just kind of jumped in there and let him teach me how to be a better parent. And I think it was really helpful for me. I know it will be helpful for many of you. Uh, so this conversation is one that I felt like just flowed very naturally. And like I said, come from a very humble place, but with a lot of great takeaways. And so as you're listening to this, if you have an aspiring school leader, if you have a school leader in your network that you think needs to hear this, share this episode with them, share Josh's information with them so they can continue to learn more and grow. Uh, it's a really enjoyable conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. Again, as always, thanks for listening. If you have not subscribed, please subscribe. We need all the support we can get. Uh, if you have, we appreciate you so much for being a loyal listener and enjoy this podcast. Well, Josh, thanks so much for making time to be here with today. I'm excited to talk to you. Dustin, it is a true honor. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, well, I know that uh, seeing that you have your own podcast and you have, I think, roughly 300 episodes, maybe a little lower, a little higher. Uh, I'm sure you're nervous about hopping on a mic and talking to us today. <laughs> No, it's very much second nature now. Although when I first started the podcast, I will say I was extremely scripted. I hated listening to my own voice, but yep. you know, as you know, as you get into it and years after, I, I feel very much more comfortable behind a, a microphone and just having a conversation. So I'm excited about, you know, diving into aspiring leadership with you. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. So obviously, you know, the first question that we ask everybody is who are you and what do you love about what you do? Oh goodness. So I have taken several iterations over my time in education. So I actually started as a graphic designer and the economy crashed and I quickly had to like pivot and figure out what I was going to do with my life. Thankfully, I'm married to an extremely wise and wonderful woman. And she was like, well, what do you love? I came down to art and soccer. Those are my two loves. And so she said, well, what career can you do that kind of blends the two? And what I came up with was education. Um, Obviously, I love kids too. That's a big component. But those were the two um, avenues that I was looking at. So I went back to school, was a coach, was a paraprofessional with special education. And during that time, um, the economy still wasn't very good in Minnesota, where I grew up and where we were at the time. And so my in-laws lived in Texas. We flew down for a weekend. I said, if we get jobs, we're going to move. Little did I know that actually was going to happen. We both got jobs <laughs> one day and I was like, oh man, this is like happening. So two weeks later, we were finding a house. We moved down here and the school year started. And so I was an art teacher for six years. My th- third year as an art teacher, I started coaching and my assistant principal tapped me on the shoulder one morning. I was going to get some coffee and he said, you know, I see you as a coach. You've done a lot of things outside of your classroom lately. I think you should be a building leader someday. And I wasn't even awake really. And I laughed at him. I literally laughed in his face because I was like, this can't be real. I'm just learning how to be a teacher, how to be a coach. How could I possibly know how to lead a building? And so that conversation happened some more. Of course, I talked to my wife. And then a month later, I was in a master's program. Two years later, I got promoted as a dean of students at another school, a neighboring school that was in a very different community. I had an extremely hard year. It was probably the hardest year of my career. In fact, I almost left education because of that. Um, However, that year strengthened me as not only a leader, but then also finding my passions, um, which includes restorative practices and trauma-informed care. At the same time, my wife and I were going through foster care and I was learning trauma-informed practices as a parent. And then I was able to incorporate that into my building um, also at that time. 
I was only on that campus for a year, got promoted again as assistant principal, and I've been an assistant principal for nine years and two different districts, two different schools. And then this last summer uh, in July, I made the switch to, to work and expand my role on the Teach Better team. So I'm no longer on a campus. I'm now traveling and speaking. I've got a podcast network that I'm in, uh, in charge of. We've got 35 podcasts on the Teach Better podcast network, including my own. I uh, wrote a book, Aspire to Lead. Yeah. And I'm just trying to impact as many people as possible. So that's what I love right now is I, I felt like I, I did a great job on the campus level. And now I get to kind of expand my reach and make an impact at a greater level. We, we've had a few different guests on uh, and definitely recently we've talked about, you know, how, how their background shaped them to become leaders. And what is unique is I now have found my first art person, become <laughs> a leader of any sort. I recently talked to a superintendent of one of the largest districts in America who is a French teacher. And I also highlighted the fact that I'm like, that is not, that's not normal. Let's talk no. about that. So like, you know, m leadership, what I do love about that is that, especially if you've been in education for any number of years, it, generally there's a path that you can talk about. It's like, oh, you go be the social study teacher or a math teacher maybe, mm -hmm. or you know, a generally like a testing grade. Did yep. you have some of those insecurities when you were thinking about leadership of like, people aren't gonna take me seriously, and, which is crazy, but did you have to go through any of those insecurities to put yourself out there as a leader? I had people straight up tell me that, <laughs> I mean, they were very blunt about the fact that I was an elected teacher I, I didn't know what I was doing. How could I possibly give feedback to other teachers when I wasn't a core subject? Right. And then I also had leaders that they they were more political in their response in regards to my position, but they essentially were saying the same thing. So right. I felt right away that I had to prove myself more so than potentially, like you said, a social studies teacher, someone that maybe was in charge of state testing or um, right. what was considered your, your core subject matter. So yeah, I had insecurities myself, but I think that only intensified with the fact that I had other people saying that as far as my peers. The other thing I will say too, Dustin, is that I was young. I was really young as a person, as an educator. And to go from being viewed as this new elective art teacher who's creative and just kind of in his own corner to then suddenly being with the admin team, being in all these meetings, then viewed as like, oh, you're going to the dark side. Like a lot of my relationships with my peers shifted dramatically. And I went from, okay, this is someone that I can have lunch with to all of a sudden I'm going up to a group of people and it gets quiet. And then those folks aren't talking to me the same way. The way that I have to communicate, I'm I'm trying to like navigate, okay, are they seeing me as an administrator? Are they seeing me as a friend? Are they seeing, seeing me as a peer? And, and there was just this weird dynamic of, Am I on the admin team? Am I a teacher? All of a sudden, I'm a, a leader, but I don't have a title initially. So there was just this, this navigation of weird waters that I had to, to go around. What, what kind of encouragement do you have for people? I was just talking to a principal in my, my main role with Franklin Covey Education the other day who said she has a great assistant principal who she thinks has all the skills and talents, but one of the things that's holding her back right now is she's still stuck in that world of like being almost overly friendly with her colleagues. And she understands why the, the principal wasn't actually trying to judge her for it, but she's like, how do I help her out of this? Cause it's a tough place. What encouragement do you have people that are in that space of, well, I'm a leader, but I, I'm not any different. I don't want to, you know, I, I want to keep my friends like, I, I, yeah. What, what, what do you have for us? Cause that's a tough place to be. It is a tough place to be. And I had to kind of let go of the fact that those friendships probably weren't going to continue in the same capacity. I had to own it. It, it sucked. I'll be honest. It wasn't yeah. something that I wanted to happen because I had spent six years on that campus and, you know, you're going to baseball games with these guys and you're going, you know, to different social outings after work, you know, and you have a different relationship. But I knew that if I really wanted this goal of becoming a leader on a campus, that there were some things that were going to be lost. And part of being an administrator in that role is that you have to provide feedback. You have to be in uncomfortable situations. And that was something that I wanted to move forward to instead of and then like embrace it versus just hiding from it. And there were some really uncomfortable times that were unfortunate. And there were some relationships that changed that I didn't want. But at the same point, I also had to keep my eye on the goal and say, okay, this is going to make me a better educator moving forward. Because at the time, I thought there might be a chance that I was moved up on that campus. And if that was the case, then the peer to peer relationship wouldn't work. You know, if I had to go in and do an actual observation on on someone that I knew 
you know, I was going to have to assess them and then give them potentially critical feedback to make them better. And if they thought that I was a friend in the same way, that conversation would not go well. Yeah. So to that point, I mean, one of the hardest roles of any administrator is that observation kind of feedback cycle. Yep. It's hard if, you know, I taught math. It's It was hard for me to even come in as a former math teacher to math, current math teachers. And I had data from like success of my kids. So at least that credibility there was still really hard with that. Yep. What what are some tricks that you were able or, you know, what strategies did you uh, implement to be able to earn the trust of those folks so they took your feedback seriously and they made the improvements that were needed for their kids? Of course. So I'm going to kind of go back, Dustin, as far as like the art teacher piece, right? Because I had to prove that I was able to provide feedback and and know what was going on inside other classrooms. So what I did was I went through a training so that we did what these quick walkthroughs they were called. So you go in for three minutes and you're just taking data on your phone. There's a program that we, that we had. And so really I met with every single teacher prior to saying, one, is it okay for me to be in your classroom? Two, I'm not looking at you or judging you in any way. I'm literally taking data on what the students are doing. So actually breaking it down for them. So they understood prior to me even entering what I was actually doing. And I showed them, I brought the program up. So that way there was no judgment, right? It was just me taking data. And then afterwards I asked them if they wanted feedback on what I saw. And that way it was more of a partnership. It was something that we were coming in together versus, oh, I am a leader. I'm coming in. I'm going to <laughs> come down on you. It's a gotcha moment. You better be out of your desk. You better be moving around with the, with the kids. It wasn't that. It was, okay, if you want this tool, and I, I did implement something similar, which was a backwards um, observation where I would actually tell them, okay, what would you like me to come and view versus me just coming in and, and potentially looking for something like that. It was very, uh, it was very potent as far as what they wanted me to come in. You know, for instance, am I asking higher level questions? Am I walking around the classroom in all aspects? Am I having collaboration occur? You know, so there was different aspects that, you know, those backwards observations helped. And I really honed in on that piece and, and created that in my next campus because of the work I did with these three minute walkthroughs and, and that partnership that I had with them. So letting them know that it was, again, a partnership piece versus me just coming in as a gotcha moment. Yeah, I think so. One of the things you said earlier in your intro is uh, you experience, and I don't, I don't want you to put you on a spot to share things that you know you're not prepared to share publicly like that. But uh, when you talk about you went through the hardest year mm-hmm. as an educator and almost left education, that's something that every educator educator that I look up to has experienced at least once. And I would say a lot of those folks who are still in it have experienced multiple times over the last few years in ways they yeah. never have. Can you just give us some insight? And you don't have to go as specific as the story itself, but what were some of the components of what made that the hardest year possible? And how were you able to overcome that? Of course. So, no, I, I do. I, I'm very transparent. You can ask me anything, Dustin. <laughs> so, yeah, that that I was just un, underprepared for the needs of that campus. I felt very confident in the role of Dean of Students. My assistant principal, my mentor, um, she was the assistant principal at the time, Sandra Pegram, she gave me every opportunity. So, you know, I felt like day one, I knew the role. What I didn't understand was the campus I was at prior was very affluent and the needs of that campus was extremely different to the Title I school that I was in the following year. And the things that were happening in the community were spilling into the into the campus. And I was using three different things. I was using detentions, ISS, and OSS. And OSS probably more often than I would have liked because of the severe behaviors and things that they were bringing on to the campus. And so what I was doing was I was sending those students right back into the community. And guess what? <laughs> they were only getting in trouble out in the community, which then was a cycle of coming back onto the campus. And so I was just beaten down in the fact that I felt like I was useless. You know, I was using these tools, but the behaviors and the things that were occurring on the campus weren't being like getting better at all. It was only intensifying. And so um, that's where I was kind of like looking into the restorative practices and pieces like that, because I just didn't have any hope in the moment. And I just felt like the staff wanted me to be something that I wasn't. They wanted me to just bring the hammer every single time for these students. And the, the kids just didn't know certain aspects of how to be successful and how to work through like emotional intelligence. The, any adversity was typically a behavior um, that we didn't want to see in the classroom or in the hallways. So it was more about, okay, well, we need to teach 
these students how to work through adverse situations. There's obviously trauma going on in the lives and trying to work with the staff to look at some alternatives because the things that were in place were just not working. And so um, I was at a spot that was just despair in the sense that I felt like I was going to come in put my cape on, be Superman, be everything that this campus needed to be successful. And that quickly changed to you're not doing it right. <laughs> you aren't, um, you know, hammering these kids left and right. We need to kick them out of school, you know, things like that. So, you know, it was one of those things where I had to find a balance and kind of educate the staff because our student population had changed over the last couple of years and they weren't used to the problems that were occurring. So what can we do differently to make sure that we're finding success? And so I started that, you know, that process. I felt really good by the end of the school year. I didn't realize I was going to get promoted and move to a different campus. So I felt like we were moving in the right direction. And then of course, when I moved to that next campus, then it was like, I was going home. I had my my passion, my vision, and the school that I went to had similar behaviors on the campus. So I was able to start to work through the restorative practices piece and really hone in on like the behavior matrix and some of the practices uh, moving forward. Yeah. To that point, I mean, I, I think I, I've read a few of your blogs that you've written with your wife that I think yeah. is interesting, but whether it's going through the experiences you've had as an educator or the experiences you talk about with being a foster parent, or I guess formerly a foster parent, where you've got five of your own kids now, right? So you had, I guess you had five foster kids, you adopted what, three of them? Is that right? Yeah. So, and we actually have a foster baby right now. <laughs> of course you do. All right. So I'm not going to get all, all of it right. So you, you've really just have a heart for kids and people. Yeah. And so what have you learned through your professional and personal experiences about trauma and trauma-informed practices that you want other people to really understand or know? Yeah. So I'll be honest, when I went through the foster care training, I was not in a great space because I was like, I'm a parent of two. I think we're being successful. Why do I need to go to classes? And so that was kind of my mindset prior to. So I'll be very transparent in that. That was not a good space. Um, quickly, we learned from TCU, Professor Purvis, um, she passed away um, just a couple of years ago, but her work is phenomenal and it's on trauma-informed practices. And they've even given a lot of free resources, including online training to educators the last couple of years. So anyone that's looking for more information, I think that's a great resource. But in that, I learned that a lot of students, a lot of kids go through trauma, not only amongst their young ages, but also in utero. And a lot of things that happen prior to even birth affects the cells and how the brain works. And that's not only in utero, that can happen with chronic stress, it can happen with trauma well beyond even adults, right? So we just have to understand that a lot of times our kids are coming in with scars, biological scars, and something that they've had to deal with over and over every day. And they sometimes don't understand certain things. So for instance, Neglect is one of the highest pieces of abuse that occur in the United States. A lot of things um, happen, like for instance, 70% of students have at least one form of trauma based on the ACE testing that occurs throughout the United States. And that's across the world. So like we have to understand as educators, that the majority of our kids have gone through some crazy experience that we don't know about. And so the way that we communicate with them has to be different. So for instance, like I was growing up, if I was running down the hallway, I was going to have an administrator. I was going to have a teacher screaming at the top of their lungs at me, or I'd have probably spit all over my face. And, you know, there would be some type of consequence that followed with that, right? It was punitive. Where now I, I, I ask my staff over and over, please don't interact that way, especially if you don't have a relationship with a child, because what's going to happen is most likely you're going to get a negative reaction and it's not something that you're going to want. And so I asked them to be a window instead of a mirror, meaning that you need to let that negative behavior go through you instead of replicating that to the child and only escalating the emotions, because a lot of our kids don't know how to regulate those emotions, in which case <laughs> then we're going to get it to be a situation where I'm going to have to be involved and it's going to get much bigger than it needs to be over probably something as small as running in the hallway. So it was just a whole lot of training um, that happened with our staff as far as how to de-escalate, how to work with our students about them understanding their emotions and working on you know, how that behavior needs to be taught versus just assuming that they have these skills moving forward. Well, you talk about like how we were trained or brought up. 
Uh, I even think about, you know, you see my kids behind me, yeah. Luke, the other day. Again, I, I love my kids, but they are as tough as I was at their age. And so uh, I can right away, I was in one of your blogs too about the power of de-escalation. And mm-hmm. so it's convicting to me because I, I can just think of Luke in my house of him getting upset and my voice level just continuing to go up. And it yeah. actually doesn't solve anything. But in my head, I think, I am the alpha. I am like the, the, the person that you have to listen to. This is going to fix it because you're not going to outshout me. It's so convicting. I think the part that I would say, if I were honest, is I, I tried to unpack this, uh, since diving into your work, I, I think for me, the, the part of it is of like being the window is, well, am I, am I still, showing him that there is authority in life. Like you still have to respect authority, right? Cause when he goes out into the world, he has to respect his bosses. He has to respect laws. And I think part of me struggles with like insecure wise of like, if I go sure. to the window, am I just being weak? Am I just kind of letting him blow up and be whatever he's going to be? Have you ever heard that before? Have anybody oh my goodness, yes. that way? So, <laughs> All the through time. It. Let's have our own session here. And yeah, then I love hopefully it. people learn from it. No, I think that's the main thing for educators, is, especially with teachers, and, and I was the same way, is, is the power component, right? Like, we don't want to lose power, and, and right. we're so fearful of that. And what I say for that is that just because a kid, and I'm not going to use your son, I'm going to say a student in the hallway, right? Is, him Luke, it's funny. <laughs> so if, if a kid tells you to F off, like, you are the one that either transfers the power or contains the power. You, you don't lose that because a kid reacts in a negative way, Right. Okay, I know, I know you need to calm down. We're going to have this conversation later, right? That that power still exists. So they understand, okay, the de-escalation needs to occur in this moment because honestly, if we think about it, and I'm, I'm talking about students with trauma for the most part, an escalated behavior, the brain may take 45 minutes for them to get to a state where they even listen to the words coming out of your mouth, Wow, where they don't even input that, right? So if we have that, understanding and that's not that's not normal typical you know two-parent household that they're feeling loved every day and all their needs are being met but for a student that's had some form of trauma it could take 30 45 minutes for the brain to get to a state where it's not in survival mode it is calmed down in okay rational conversation and now i'm able to, to learn through my behavior in which case that's when the conversation needs to happen of the potential consequences that are going to happen the okay how are we communicating i see that you got to a red state of emotion how are we going to not get there right we need to recognize how we're feeling where we're going to go to de-escalate or calm down or you know give them strategies so that way as an adult they have these skills so that when it is time to have that conversation the boss or someone else right of authority that they're not making the same mistakes as an 11 year old as a 12 year old as a 14 year old well, do you find, and I don't know if it's, you know, after a long day. So I, I find it with, with my students, I feel like I was really understanding with that. To your point, every time if they, I, I was told to F off at one point. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I didn't take it personal at all. Like I didn't even think about the possibility it's personal. And I have no idea. And I talk to my wife all the time because she's a teacher and now uh, an administrator at her district why when it comes to our kids yeah. i lose all the professional ability that i've yep. had for years why yep. is that because you you've learned this too oh my gosh yeah i mean my wife constantly is like okay start being administrator josh <laughs> not father josh yeah. and then i'm like okay i got you and then i have to be like okay you know fill in the blank child let's go and take a walk and honestly the walk is probably more for me to de-escalate yes. than the child <laughs> So, or it's like, you know, tag in, tag out, you need 30 seconds to calm down and then you can come back to the child and, and have that conversation because nothing's going to be, you know, so, and we, we, me and my wife have to check each other, you know, we got accountability partners at home too, of, you know, we're in the, the emotional state and we're not, you know, we're only going to escalate the situation and it's not going to be something good. So I think that's human nature as a father you know this too, you love your kid unconditionally, you want the best for them and you want them to be productive adults later on. And so it it is frustrating, especially when you constantly are telling them over and over and over. And I have to remind myself that, you know, for some of my, my kiddos, there's a biological piece there and it, it might take them more 
than it would my biological children. You know, some of my biological children, I could look at them and, you know, my daughter, she'll, she'll cry on spot. Like she knows that like, she's disappointing me in some way and she's going to change the behavior immediately. That's not every kid. Right. So you have to understand, you know, each kid's different, you know, and as a father, sometimes I need to time out just as much as they do. Well, uh, I didn't realize that we would uh, shift so quickly into dust and lays down on the couch session. So I, appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but it's, it's point, all good. Like, trauma, trauma has always been there and it's yes. just becoming more and more talked about and more and more prevalent in the need to really have trauma informed practices. And so, uh, I just want to encourage people to continue to dive into your work, but also people, uh, other folks that are, you know, the, the, the leaders in this, in this work. Yeah. So, uh, how, when did you write your recent book, Aspire to Lead? Aspire to Lead was one year ago, almost. So at the end of September, yeah, it was written during the pandemic and who knew that the world was going to change so drastically during that time. But yeah, it was quite the process and, you know, talk about an art teacher trying to figure out how to become a leader and our teacher becoming a writer also was a mind game in itself to, to be able to like hone in and, and work through this project, but very proud of the, of the book and, and hopefully it's a resource that can help navigate aspiring leaders. Yeah. So what's the impetus for it? Who, who's it written for? Why did you decide I need to write a book? Cause that's, that's a bold move for anybody, but definitely someone who is father of five, maybe more <laughs> now, uh, who knows? I can't even keep count now, but also having the jobs that you have. Yeah. So when I was an assistant principal at my last district, I had the wonderful opportunity to work with five other APs to work on a aspiring leadership program. So we built this from the ground up. It was an awesome program as a cohort, and we did it for three years. After the third year, the district said, okay, this is improving leaders across our district. We're actually um, seeing promotions from all these folks. We're going to take it on ourselves now. And I was sitting there going, okay, I have found my passion. I love working with aspiring leaders. What am I going to do? I was a part of the district's um, principal association at the time. So I asked them, can I just do like a one-off event for the district and do an aspiring leader program? They're like, yeah, go ahead. It wasn't heavily advertised. I didn't even feed these folks. And I had 175 people show up on like a Thursday at like five o'clock. And it was an hour session. I had a panel. I had, you know, some collaboration pieces where they actually like role played through some crucial conversations. I thought it was really impactful. And the response I got was from a lot of folks that both attended not only the cohort, but then also the one night event was that they were just longing for more information and they didn't have a guide. So unfortunately, I had a fantastic mentor on my campus who gave me every opportunity, but I realized that that wasn't the case for a lot of other folks. And they were just hoping and praying that they would get an opportunity to, to learn and get some experience prior to becoming a leader. And there's just so many educators that are wanting to move up and, you know, they love teaching, but they want a better challenge, a bigger challenge. And so that's what the podcast started, Aspire to Lead, uh, four years ago was really a birth out of my longing to help aspiring leaders. Because I knew if there's 175 in my district, <laughs> what does that look like for the state of Texas? What does that look for the United States and the world? So um, I saw a need and, you know, Todd Nisloni, who is the co-author of Kids Deserve It, um, I've known him for a while and he was really kind of the, my help with that. He was uh, a podcaster himself at the time. And I just used him as kind of my sounding board to learn, as you know, as podcasting is <laughs> a craft in itself, you know, how <laughs> to even start that process. Then from the podcast, I then got probably more confident in my voice and saying, okay, I want to share my story because I know there's a lot of folks that need some more guidance. So I was very transparent in my book of like, my failures, all the idiot moves I made as a teacher, you know, some of the things that surprised me. And we've talked about a little bit today, as far as like the relationships and things, those dynamics and how they changed, what experiences I needed to gain to be successful, not only as a aspiring leader, but then to be an administrator also. And some characteristics that I thought every leader should have to be successful once they get to that role. So I could spend a couple hours with you breaking down your book, but I'm curious what are some of the most powerful ahas that administrators have had or aspiring leaders have had from interacting with your content? Yeah, I think what I've heard the most is the mentorship piece of understanding that it's okay to have multiple mentors in your life. 
And you're probably going to need to shift that as you get more and more experience. And when your profession changes, the, the mentors I had as a teacher were far different than the mentors that I had as an administrator yeah. and as administrator to now my role as kind of more business oriented, you know, those things have shifted drastically. And then also, do you have mentors for your relationships? Do you have mentors for, you know, if you're a person of faith, like there's other aspects that you need to hone in on because we can't do this alone. And so often our, our teachers are trying that of trying to understand how to become an administrator someday without having a guide. And that's, that's going to be a very difficult um, thing. But the other piece is like the um, identity piece, because so often we try to become the leader we think others want to be us yep. to be instead of the leaders that we truly are. And unfortunately, I went through that too. And I, I talked about that of trying to become someone who I thought the masses wanted versus my passions, the things that I thought were true and values that I need to hold on to. And, you know, that one year that I talked about, that was part of my struggle. And I had to come to grips with, the, okay, other people may not agree with it. It doesn't mean it's incorrect. It doesn't mean it's wrong. So like, how can I actually be the leader I want to be versus those who want me to be that? So for me, one of my early leadership opportunities was, um, for lack of a better description, when I think about sports coaches, I think there are system coaches yep. and there are player coaches and they both have a role. And it's not that system coaches don't have the ability to relate to players and player coaches don't have systems. It's just what they lean into the most. And I followed a system person and my strengths have always been relational player, yep. player coach. And so I'm curious, it, 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 it was crushing, I will say, trying to be someone I wasn't because I, that person before me had so much success and I was trying to continue that success. What's your encouragement for folks that are following kind of the opposite leadership style, but trying to continue with some of the results and systems or processes that have been successful in that organization? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a hard balance, especially if your principal is trying to get you to be one of those two things, right? Because you yep. want to appease Obviously, they're in charge of your professional well-being moving forward, especially if you want to advance. So for me, like, thankfully, my principles have always allowed me to be who I wanted. I was taking on what the teachers wanted me to be. Um, so they definitely wanted me to be systematic in that. As you can tell, I am very much relationship-based. Relationship so um, for that, I think, you know, you have to be true to yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be effective and you're going to feel burnout. And that's what I experienced was as an administrator it is hard. You're working 70 hours a week because of all of the, the pieces that are involved, right? All the events after school, you know, we had things happen all the time. You're already stressed. It's already a difficult job. And then to pretend to be something that you're not every single day is just unhealthy. And it, it, it stacks up to the point where you get to the point where you're like, I don't even want to be here. I don't want to, I don't want to put on this facade, this, this mask that I have to put on of the disciplinarian that comes in and, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. Right. So yeah, for me, it was just one of those things where it was just toxic. It was eating me from the inside out. And then I started to feel like I, I it was showing like how I interacted with people. It was just not something that was beneficial for the culture of the campus. Yeah. So as people are listening, what, what have been some of the more effective ways that you've heard leaders dive into this book? I mean, obviously they can go on Amazon right now, order it for themselves, but there's a lot of power in community. And so uh, what, what have been some cool ways that you've heard folks, you know, whether it's a district uh, book study or mm -hmm. school-wide book study? I mean, I'm just curious how people have utilized your books to come together. Yeah, I think the most popular way is a book study on a campus for aspiring leaders because every chapter... Well, one, it has a guest author, someone that's in leadership right now, um, who I felt was someone that spoke into my own life. Um, one of my, like the mentor I talked about, Sandy Pegram, she's she's a co-writer in there and um, she's got a contribution. But then also at the end of every chapter, there are specific questions to help you in the reflection process. Because I think reflection is something, and I have a whole chapter on reflection, but I think that's just one thing that we don't really see as something that needs to occur every single day. And it's not any fault to any person. I, I'm one, I'm guilty of this also. It's just a time piece. But if it's important, we need to find time. And so, you know, for myself, driving home after the day is done in the car, that is when I was using the reflective process to understand 
am I doing the right things uh, moving forward? So I think, you know, just that step-by-step process. I also have a free book study online at teachgrower.com slash academy. Um, you can go on there. You, you don't even need the book really to go through that course if you want. Um, of course, I'd love you to, to have that resource, but, you know, it's like 45 different videos of me just kind of expanding on each chapter and just giving some more stories and examples. And it's just supposed to be more of a additional supplementary piece to help people go through the book study. That's awesome. Well, before we, before we end, I do want to ask a little bit about your own podcast, because yeah. as I was mentioning before we started, you've got even more expertise than I have. So I look up to you. I was joking that you're going to be nervous today and you've got way more reps than I ever have. <laughs> uh, one of the, one of the parts of this process that's been really enjoyable for me is just talking to so many really interesting people that I wouldn't have been able to talk to the way I'm talking to, uh, through this medium. Yeah. And there's a couple, I mean, every, every guest has, it has their own genius they brought. So, uh, you know, when someone asked me one time when I was on somebody else's podcast, what's your favorite episode? And I, there's no chance I could do that or favorite guest because I genuinely have liked every guest there have been aha moments. Like I can go back to our first guest, Julie Morgenstern, who was wrote a book called Time for Parenting that I still use some of those strategies because mm -hmm. it, it wasn't about being the first. It was about what she said to me that hit this blog because of, you know, me escalating <laughs> with this kid the other day. And your, one of your blogs has helped me rethink how I need to be a parent. And so I'm just curious, what's one to two of those moments that you've had on the podcast that have helped you be either a better professional or a better person? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. So I think the most memorable <laughs> is Rick Warmelly. And I probably, I always say his name different as far as the last name, but he is the author of um, Fair is Not Always Equal. And granted, it's not really a leadership book. It's really on standards-based grading and assessment. However, and you probably experienced this yourself, is when you talk with someone, sometimes there are people on the other end, you're just like, you are a genius. You are a much higher intellectual than I am. And I feel inferior talking to you. And he was one of those people. And he had just this genuine way of making you feel like an equal. And I just, it wasn't so much the content, but just the way he made you feel. And then also the brilliance that he provided in that, in that episode. I think also our conversation about the future of education toward the end, I kind of geeked out with him a little bit about like what that looks like. And it wasn't something that was scripted or prepared. It was just something organic that came out of that conversation. And I just wanted to talk to him for like three more hours. And honestly, after the conversation was done, this was before my book was even in concept. He asked me, when are you writing your book? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? I, I don't have a book. And, and he, that conversation, of course, was a huge piece of why I wrote Aspire to Lead. And he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to spend extra additional time talking with that and offering for me to send anything to him to look at prior to. I mean, it was just this, just the genuine piece of, I want to help you. I want, I can see there's growth there and I want to help in any way possible. And I just, I just love that about him, about the conversation. And I think any leader should be that way, right? We should be looking to build up everyone we're in contact with any interaction, they need to be feeling better about themselves and about their abilities when they leave. And, and that's something that I've, I've tried to not only have on the podcast, but then also in my building, because we are, we have so many short conversations and experiences, and we need to make sure that we are building a culture where people are feeling like they're valued and they're supposed to be in that spot and they're making a difference. And I think that's something that's lost way too often. Yeah. Do you, do you find one of the, the common themes we're having this season, and it's uh, accidental, honestly, is the, the focus on the staff, right? So often we talk about all these uh, strategies we can put in place to love kids more, teach kids more effectively, get them ready for, to thrive on assessments or in life. But it's looking past the staff as opposed to looking into their eyes and loving and serving them. Do you find that to be a key strategy of importance these days? Yes. And I didn't understand that early on in my leadership journey. You know, I was one of those things where it was like, oh, I'm the leader. You just do what I say. And that's how things are going to happen. And man, I was wrong. You know, that was, that's far from the truth. It is, especially the last couple of years, there has been, you know, we talk about trauma for our students, but our staff goes through trauma too. You know, there's 
relationships they're in that they shouldn't be in. And there's, you know, some serious needs. Obviously, schools are under resources, under resourced teachers are not paid the way that they should be. And sometimes, you know, for a single mom that's got three kids, they might have issues putting food on the table, you know, and or there's other things where they didn't sleep the night before and they come in, they have a smile on their face and they do their very best to, to work with kids and they do a phenomenal job. But there's sometimes as leaders, we we miss that. And we, we are so student focused that we just glaze past this sea of people that are in need and are desperate for different resources. And I think the last couple of years with the amount of death that's occurred and some of these other things that have been uncovered, it was obvious that it's not just trauma-informed care for our students, it's also for our staff. And what are we doing for their mental makeup? What resources do we have for them to be successful so they can come into school? Obviously there's a sub shortage too. People don't wanna miss school. You know, If there's a need at home, am I just gonna say, yes, please take care of that. I will figure out a way to handle that because I value you, I value your life, I value your mental health versus, okay, I don't have a sub. So just, you know, you got to stick it out. I don't care if you cry in your classroom, you know, you just deal with it the rest of the day, you know, and it's just one of those things as a leader, I, I just want to make sure that my staff knew that they were valued. I saw them as people, teachers are the most important staff on the campus. So how am I going to do the things that will make you successful every day? That's, that's powerful to hear. And I, I, I really believe in my soul that, if more leaders just focused on the adults and yep. love them, serve them, treated them like they did with their students when they were teachers, I feel like so many of the challenges that we experience within an education culture, within a school culture, and the challenges of behavior with kids would get fixed pretty quickly. I mean, not perfect, but fixed because we're modeling the love and service of the adults who then can model that love and service for the kids. 100%. That's awesome. Yeah. Well. Before I let you go, we we have the same four questions for everybody that I love to ask, which are kind of rapid fire. They're, they're supposed to be. So to that, what what's a habit or discipline you utilize on a daily or weekly basis that makes you the best version of yourself? Boundaries. And by doing that, my calendar is my greatest asset. Obviously, I've got six kids. I've got a wife. I've got a lot of different jobs that we've talked about. <laughs> so, you know, a calendar to really delegate my time. You know, the popular term right now is quietly quitting. And I don't, I don't love that for a lot of different reasons, but I think a better term for it is creating boundaries within your profession. Obviously as an administrator, if we're not careful, we can work an insane amount of time and not see our family at all. And I'll be honest, a spurt in my life that occurred and it was not healthy for anyone involved, the campus or myself. And so I had to put up some boundaries and by doing, using a calendar that helped me be more efficient about my time, what was valuable, what were things that I needed to make sure that I was setting time aside. And I'll be honest, family is in the calendar, you know, times with my wife, times with my kids, like that is something that has to be intentional because if I don't do that on a calendar, then it might get lost. And too often that occurred and they are way too important to me to let that slip away. And the same with the campus, obviously that's important, but there are certain tasks that I need to delegate to, to someone else. There are certain things that aren't as important that need to get done on that day that could be taken care of tomorrow. And just understanding like, and that takes some time, of course, being in the role to understanding what are the most important things that need to happen. But I had a superintendent say, you need to shoot the alligator close to the boat. Well, that was me as far as administration and making sure that the things that were important were taken care of in that moment, but some things I could push on to the next day. And then of course the calendar was, was the thing that's helped me as a tool to be successful, not only on campus, but as a father and as a husband. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now that uh, jokes about we, if we all said, well, we just had more time, we'd be able to do it. But the true reality is, is that we would all spend that time probably just as inefficiently or ineffectively as we're doing now. And so we have to just look at our limited time and really 100%. own it to your point. Yep. Uh, all right. So what book or books have you either read lately or throughout your career that you really think other people need to check out because they've been so instrumental in your development? Oh, goodness. I told you before, like I am an avid reader. Uh, I love books. So Kids Deserve It. I'll, I'll put that up as one of my first books that I actually like. I'm a huge sports fan. You, yeah. you probably can see. Right. So podcasts, books, like any content 
was all sports. And so Kids Deserve It was actually the first educational book that I picked up. It just so happens that one of my good friends now is Todd Nisolani. But I think that was one of the most powerful pieces as a teacher. Um, what am I reading right now? Honestly, I'm reading Superfans, which is a business book of all things. It's not educational. Um, but I do think there's components that can turn into something that schools can work with because you know we talk about social presence on campuses and too often we don't have one and so we're not telling the story of our school versus letting other people make stories and post it on facebook or whatever about what's occurring in the school and so you know making sure that you are building super fans for your school also is actually something that um can be something that that resonates as far as business to that poking the bear by dave schmidt um i'm reading that right now that just came out and he's talking about all kinds of things uh, dave's on the team but he uh he is not bashful about finding tough topics and trying to poke holes through it and it's one of those things like i don't know if i agree with you on everything that you're saying but I also don't know if he truly believes everything either. It's just about having that difficult conversation and, and, and being uncomfortable to say, okay, at least put it on the table so we can talk about it because yep. that's how we figure things out. And there's so many things in education that needs to be fixed. Nobody wants to talk about it. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's so true. My wife's going through one of those Patrick Lencioni books of uh, uh, dysfunctions of a team and difficult conversations is one of them. Uh, yeah. So when you're driving, when you're running, when you're, I mean, you're in Texas, so you're probably doing a lot of driving, walking through the neighborhood, working out. What what type of music's on your playlist? Either songs, artists. I joked earlier about Miley Cyrus. I would not assume <laughs> that, but I made a bad joke just to see if I get you to laugh. Uh, but I'm curious what's on your playlist. It's definitely not Miley. Uh, <laughs> so I actually took my daughter, and this is a product of the pandemic. She's a uh, avid music listener like myself. Um, I took her to my favorite band, Smash Pumpkins. Uh, we we got went down and that was her first concert. And I, we were driving back and I looked at her and I was like, what'd you think? And she just looked down and she was like, that's a lot to input. Like she was just trying to like put it all together of like what she just saw and experienced, but she absolutely loved it. So Smash Pumpkins is my favorite band. Anything 90s alternative, uh, I've got that playlist. Uh, I was listening to Silver Chair on the way to drop the kids off this morning. So um, yeah, Pearl Jam, all that kind of stuff. So that's where I fall, Nirvana. I haven't had a silver chair reference in years. I'm going to have to listen <laughs> to that on my drive today. But uh, Smashing Pumpkins, I might have been one of them. That's funny. My, uh, years and years ago, might have been, well, it's when today was hot, might have been one of my first concerts. So that's yeah. funny that you took your daughter to see them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we got the band t-shirts and everything. We rocked out. It was awesome. That's awesome. So you're, I mean, you, you run or you help oversee or work with a podcast or a network of, of podcasters and thought leaders. You're around awesome uh, just people all the time and awesome leaders all the time. What's the best piece of advice you've either heard from them, seen online, read in a book that just hit you right in the heart that you've got to share with others? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is Sandra Pegram, who she was my assistant principal when I was a teacher. I got to work with her again as her assistant principal, as she was the principal. It was phenomenal. She's like family. She's an amazing person. And she always just said, don't let anyone tell you who you are. And she knew I was working as an art teacher at the time. And, and I was struggling with that of like trying to figure out my identity. And I talk about this in the book too, of like, who am I as a leader? And she was just so instrumental of like, not trying to mold me as herself, but allowing me to like, figure it out, make mistakes, fall on my face constantly. And then she come in and then we were able to the reflect and kind of learn through that process. And, and she really showed me what a mentor truly should be versus so many times. I, and I've seen this firsthand of, of people being told how to be, who to be, what to do in this position, instead of just allowing them to experience themselves and figure it out because there's not just one right way to do a lot of things in administration. And so you know, for her just to, to give me the confidence to say, whoever you become is great and fabulous. Don't let anyone get in the way of that it was extremely powerful and exactly what I needed at that time. I'm laughing because I started this podcast, at least the pre part of this podcast telling you, I'm really going to try to get to 25, 30 minutes today. <laughs> and it was so easy to talk to you and the different topics that I wanted to go down, we just expanded upon way more than I anticipated. So I 
I want to encourage people, if they love listening to you today, because I definitely did and love your genuine nature and just your, your, that you shared just your raw experience, as well as just really sincere advice, not in a way that you've got all the answers, but in a way that uh, you're just processing what other great leaders are doing. How can people go learn more? So we talked about, they can go buy your book, right? So yep. where else can they find you or the wonderful colleagues that you have that are also great thought leaders out in this space? For sure. So joshstamper.com is my website. So you talked about the blogs there. I I absolutely value my wife and her opinion and, and the way that she learns also. And, you know, we've gone through this foster care journey together. So we have several uh, blogs that we've written on not only the administrative side of things, but also the parent side. So it's kind of this back yep. and forth between me and her. And so the, those blogs, I absolutely love writing with her. Um, but I also have my podcast on there and some of the other content. I've had a wonderful opportunity to contribute to some other books. So there's some other things there, um, in addition to other podcasts that I've been guests on. As far as the team goes, I work for the Teach Better team as the training and development specialist now. And the team is teachbetter.com. We actually have a conference I'm flying to today. I'm so excited that I get to speak. I get to podcast there. We've got a podcast row of 14 podcasters where, you know, some of them, most of them are from the podcast network, but yeah, the, the team does a phenomenal job of, of providing professional development to districts all around the country. And uh, I'm just so honored that I not only have this fantastic network, but I now get to be a part of this team and, and to go out and, and trying to help you know, and my my big thing is the trauma-informed care and restorative practices. I, I didn't mean to talk about that today, but of course that organically came out and and that's my passion um, in addition to aspiring leadership. So I get to do both things. I get to work with um, administrators or aspiring administrators with our admin mastermind. So if you are looking for a, a community, if you're looking to learn from others, um, that's free and it's something that we meet every Tuesday. But, you know, it's things like that where I'm I'm just able to expand and, and impact others um, beyond just a campus. And I'm, I'm just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to do that every day. Well, I love it. And as you continue to grow uh, and have other books or as you find other leaders that you think would be a great fit for our, our audience, please let us know because we feel really blessed by your time here. We're very fortunate to know you and I look forward to hopefully talking to you again in the future. Oh, it's been a true honor. Thank you so much, Justin. Yeah, Josh. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.